The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It kind of unpacks the process. You know, it has a title of this provision that accentuates the word conclusive. I don't think there can be any doubt about what this is designed to do. And basically, I think the best way to understand it is it contemplates that there's going to be a rule of law process for counting the popular vote in the states and having a recount if necessary and reaching a certification of the popular vote. That rule of law process is going to be pursuant to laws adopted in advance of the casting of the popular vote on election day in November and a number of different sections of the bill emphasize how state law has to exist you know, prior to election day to set the process. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 22nd, 2022. The false claims of election fraud and other controversy that followed the 2020 election brought to light a number of frailties in the United States system for selecting presidents. Several have their origins in the Electoral Count Act, an 1887 law whose vagaries played a central role in efforts by John Eastman and other supporters of former President Trump to keep him in the White House despite the election results. This past Wednesday, after months of negotiations, a bipartisan group of senators finally put forward a set of legislative reforms aimed at resolving these and other issues well in advance of the next presidential election in 2024. To determine what this reform package will do and how it may impact future elections, I sat down with Ned Foley, a leading election law expert and professor at The Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law, and Jean-Vierre Nadeau, a counsel at Protect Democracy who has been actively engaged in reform efforts. We talked about what the reform package intends to change, what will stay the same, and how likely it is to eventually become law. It's the Lawfare Podcast for July 22nd, the Senate's proposal for Electoral Count Act reform. So we're here to talk about what I think it's safe to say is probably the most significant set of elections-related reforms we've seen, certainly in several years, maybe in, in more than several years, several decades potentially, depending on how you count and where you think the biggest problem in uh, various aspects of our election law is. jean let me start with you, because I know you have been engaged in the process that led to these legislative proposals for the last several months. And it's worth noting, there are several proposals, depending on how you count it, it's up to six different acts or bills in terms of what actually has an independent title, kind of covering different aspects of the problems. They're then bundled into two separate 
bills, each of which has a slightly different set of co-sponsors. We can get into why that is down the road. But tell us a little bit about what the negotiation process has been since January 6th, the event that, and events prior to January 6th that really triggered broader acknowledgement that some of these reforms were really necessary to secure elections in the future. And what has happened in the subsequent, you know, 18 months or so to lead to the introduction of these these proposals yesterday? Sure. Well, that could that could be a very long answer. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the January, you, you hit it right on in the January 6th, I think really was eye-opening for many people as the, you know, the culmination of several months of efforts to overturn uh, the 2020 election. And throughout that process really sort of highlighted some of the weaknesses in current law. Uh, and that, you know, that builds on some, some of the history, of, of course, but really came into sort of stark relief following the 2020 election that the Electoral Count Act in particular, although it has served us reasonably well for you know 135 or some odd years, really needs to be updated to serve us better you know, sort of going forward in, in the future. And so, you know, it's been a, it's been a gradual process of sort of understanding what what led to the you know near failures. You know, we made it through in 2020 and January 2021, ultimately, uh, but it came in close in some respects. And so there was a sort of process of learning those lessons. And I, I think for you know, members of Congress and others really getting comfortable with understanding those, but also understanding this you know, old, archaic, complicated law uh, that, you know, Professor Foley has been studying for many years, uh, but members of Congress, maybe not so much. It sort of has come up once every four years and for the most part um, has not been in dispute with a couple of exceptions in, in recent decades, at least. So the process has really been a lot, a lot about education, I think. And then, you know, it's a complicated statute and sort of thinking through what are the best fixes? What are the potential consequences intended or unintended? What are the politics around this? It's been, you know, it's been a complicated political landscape. As you, I think, sort of referenced, Scott, there's been other election-related legislation you know, that's been introduced in Congress over the last year or two as well. And so there's just been a, a lot to sort out. But I think where we've seen the most bipartisan consensus is, is this, this issue of the Electoral Count Act and, and a few other things that Congress you know, sort of recently has begun to address. And, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of proposals, certainly the case. I think what, what you're seeing, though, is, you know, building on an, a landscape in which academics and lawyers and all other election experts and the like have started to identify not only that the Electoral Count Act needs to be fixed, but how roughly at least how to do that. Um, there's, there's an sort of emerging consensus that has developed over time. And so Congress has sort of been able to build on that and develop its own consensus. And you see a lot of commonality across all of these proposals, including the one that the Senate released yesterday. And that actually gets at the aspect of this that's kind of interesting, I think, which is that this Senate proposal, which is kind of the most concrete and frankly seems the one with the longest legs in terms of legislative process so far, at least by my understanding, it kind of emerged from a little bit of a closed door process. We haven't really had a lot of window into what this group of senators being led by Susan Collins uh, of Maine uh, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, notable for being two kind of of the swing voters in their respective parties most common swing voters, maybe the most common swing voters. We didn't have a lot, a lot of transparency in terms of where exactly they were arriving, even though we were hearing a lot of similar proposals from outside advocates, um, from different sort of analyses by different congressional committees. What does that mean in terms of how this particular package of proposals they've put forward 
is being received or likely to be received in the rest of the Congress. For example, there's no, to my knowledge, there isn't yet companion legislation in the House. Is that right? But is there a reason to think that the House is likely to be receptive to a, a package of reforms along these lines? I think that, I mean, we're going on parallel, of course, with the Senate Working Group is work by the January 6th Committee. Um, and even predating that, we saw um, one of the proposals you referenced is a not a draft piece of legislation, but an overall report with some recommendations that came from the House uh, Administration Committee. So there certainly has been, and I understand continues to be work on this going on in the House, just nothing released publicly in terms of legislation yet. So there's actually quite a lot, I think, that's been happening behind the scenes. It's been maybe a bit quieter than some other, other efforts. I think that's maybe a good thing. We do know that members of Congress have been getting a lot of advice, <laughs> having a lot of conversations and doing a lot of learning. You know, I think it remains to be seen how this all plays out, but I think we can expect to see something come from the House, either in the form of recommendations following the select committee's work and or in the form of, of their own bill. And then there'll be a process, of course, of sort of reconciling these things and, and seeing what gets through. But I, I would not take the sort of the nature of this bipartisan Senate process as being sort of, you know, on its own and not indicating a broader interest. But again, you know, the, the politics might might be tricky. This is an, an, an interesting, an interesting alignment of folks. Ned, let me actually turn to you on this, because I want to put this latest effort in a little bit of historical perspective. The law that we're talking about, the Electoral Count Act, of course, has been on the books since 1887, uh, you know, more than a century, well more than a century. And people have been identifying concerns and issues with it for almost as long, maybe not quite as long, but for a good while now, including yourself, including many scholars with whom you collaborate on a phenomenal you know, election law blog uh, and other places that for people who are dig deep and monitor these things are must reads every week. Given that we've known this, you know, have there been prior efforts in reform along these lines to deal with these issues? Or is this kind of the first time that Congress has taken a seriously serious bite at this apple? And has there been a little bit of a learning process from prior reform efforts that may have fallen short in how people seem to be approaching this one? I think this is definitely the most significant reform effort since the act was adopted back in 1887. Um, after the 1960 presidential election you know, between Kennedy and Nixon, for reasons that we could get into if we wanted to, there was a little bit of a look at the statute um, because of what happened with Hawaii's electoral votes, even though, you know, the election didn't turn on Hawaii, uh, there was a hiccup involving Hawaii that caused people to realize the Electoral Count Act, again, had these um, uh, vulnerabilities in it. But, you know, that legislative reform period didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, I think we got through the, the 20th century for the most part because we didn't have a huge number of close presidential elections. I mean, 1960 was quite close. Uh, and that's what kind of triggered concern. But, you know, we had Reagan landslides, we had Roosevelt landslides and so forth, uh, Nixon landslides in 72. But we are now in a period of uh, very close, intense contestation over the presidency, you know, starting with 2000. And I think, you know, starting with 2000, we've seen the vulnerabilities of the Electoral Count Act really exposed in 2000, 2004, 2016, and then, of course, most especially in the ugliness of, of January 6th. Uh, so, you know, it's been building, I would say, for the last 20 years, but, you know, but obviously January 6th, you 
put the necessity of doing this, you know, front and center. So I think that's that's the historical evolution of how we get to this point. Well, let's talk about some of the specific changes. The, the kind of lead bill, the bill at least that seems to have the broadest set of bipartisan co-sponsors of the two, although there's a good deal of overlap between the two actual bills that were tabled yesterday uh, or put out there yesterday, I should say, not tabled. The first one, a substantial portion of it, uh, most of it really does deal with this electoral contract reform. This other half kind of deals with issues about tra- presidential transition, which I want to co- talk about as well. But but focusing on the Electoral Count Act part, I think it's worth kind of breaking down a little bit what it does or would do if enacted to the process by which we arrive at a president. Let's start with one of the clearest issues that people had, concerns people had with the prior Electoral Count Act that it appears to address with. That, this is the section of the Electoral Count Act that's been in the U.S. Code for a long time that allowed for states to take certain actions in the event of quote-unquote failed elections without actually addressing that issue. Folks have identified this as being a major point of concern uh, in terms of setting up some condition where it seems to give states the ability to potentially change outcomes or change rules, um, although there's some debate about that, but at least opens up that possibility in the event of an undefined sort of failed election. How does this proposal deal with that issue and begin to address it? Jean-Vierve, I'll turn it to you first. Yeah, so I mean, you know, as, so, like, so current law, of, of course, provides, and we, we talk about it as being part of the ECA. This provision actually dates back further to 1845. But it provides that, you know, if a state has held an election for purposes of choosing electors and, quote, fails to make a choice, then the legislature of the state can determine the manner of appointing thereafter. Ned can tell you as, as well as, as just about anyone out there what that, that provision is meant to mean, right? It's meant to mean that, in particular, it was meant to accommodate runoff elections, for example. And there's some evidence there was also concern about extreme weather events and the like that would prevent the completion of an election, completion of voting to the point of majority on election day. And so it was allowing states some latitude to have runoff election and the like and, and complete their presidential elector selection process. You know, it was never meant to allow for you know, the suggestion that fraud or other questions about the election could, could necessarily justify a state legislature second guessing the results or, and you know, substituting its will for the voters. That's the problem. The, the language of course itself is pretty minimal and, and undefined. Um, and so we saw in 2020, some suggestions that that state legislatures could rely on this provision to step in and overturn the the election results. And so what this bill that's introduced yesterday has done is essentially removed 3 USC 2 as it currently stands, gotten rid of this this concept of a quote fail, failure or failed election, um, and instead reiterated in what would be a new sort of 3 USC 1 section, I believe, that again, electors must be appointed on on, uh, what is election day, which remains the same, and that the only circumstance under which there is an exception for that are sort of extraordinary or catastrophic events um, as provided for under state law that exists as of election day. So what it does is allow some latitudes for states to, to provide for emergencies and essentially extend voting past election day, and which, which effectively means extending you know, when they are selecting or appointing their electors, but only in those, those sort of narrow category of circumstances of extraordinary or catastrophic events and removes this concept, like I said, of of failure that has been sort of misunderstood to allow for much more latitude by state legislatures. Yeah. And if I think that's exactly right. And if I can just add to that, because I think this is a really important and welcome provision in the bill. 
the exception mechanism that Jean Vier referred to for extraordinary and catastrophic events is only, as she said, extending the period of the popular vote that already is used to appoint electors. And it, and that extension can only happen pursuant to state law adopted in advance of the popular vote itself. So the idea that a state legislature could come in afterwards and say, nope, we're going to negate the popular vote and we're actually going to appoint electors ourselves, that's just completely off the table if this bill gets adopted. And I think that's a very good thing. After we see this process of, you know, the election take place in a given state, there then goes to this process of certifying the election results, saying here's what our popular election process, assuming that's what the state chooses to pursue, arrives at. And we see this act really kind of completely overhaul and install a new process for certifying the results of an election. Look, that looks kind of in practice a lot like what the old ECA did, but replaces the language, overhauls it, and clarifies who kind of the executive official is. Can you walk us through this a little bit and note, tell us you know, what's significant about these changes? What problems are these changes in how they handle the certification process and then transmission of those results to uh, Washington, D.C., to the archivist, to others intended to address that arose out of 2020? Ned, I'll start with you on this one. Sure. And I do think this is the most important um, part of the new bill. And, and I think as important as the details are, and we'll talk about the details, I think the philosophy behind those details and and that the details serve is a crucial philosophy. Um, and in, in a funny way, it's it's that is not anything new. Um, there's a key word in both the current ECA and in the this new bill that's the same, and it's the word conclusive. Uh, it was in the old Section 5, and it would be in the new Section 5. But in the old Section 5, it got buried in 19th century convoluted verbiage. And if we look at the problems that emerged, again, over the last two decades in terms of objections to electoral votes in Congress, you know, whether they were kind of inconsequential objections that were just showboating by members of Congress, maybe in 2005 or, or 2017, or those seriously uh, disruptive objections of, of 2021, they were objections that were um, contrary to this provision, namely, they, even though procedurally you can file an objection under the current law if you have one representative and one senator, and we'll get to how that changes in the bill, I assume, later. But, but the old ECA meant to say certain kinds of objections were inappropriate objections, and an objection would be inappropriate with respect to electoral votes that Congress was supposed to accept as conclusive, and Congress said it was going to accept electoral votes as conclusive if they met the requirements of Section 5 of Title Three of the U.S. Code. And that's been completely ignored over the last two decades, unfortunately, or maybe not completely ignored, but significantly ignored in in, in problematic ways. And what the new Section 5 does, you know, in this bill, if if it were adopted, that's so important is it kind of unpacks the process, spells it out structurally in kind of 21st century language. You know, it has a title of this provision that accentuates the word conclusive. I don't think there can be any doubt about what this is designed to do. And basically, I think the best way to understand it is 
it contemplates that there's going to be a rule of law process for counting the popular vote in the states and having a recount if necessary and reaching a certification of the popular vote. That rule of law process is going to be pursuant to laws adopted in advance of the casting of the popular vote on Election Day in November. And a number of different sections of the bill emphasize how state law has to exist you know, prior to Election Day to set the process. You know, again, the state legislatures can't come in after Election Day to try to change the rules. That's an element of the elimination of the failed election provision that we talked about. But that's a point that's repeated throughout this bill, and it also takes um, center stage in this new Section 5. And so there's going to be a certification of the appointment of electors based on the popular vote and based on the rule of law uh, as a result of those procedures that take place before the meeting of the electors has to happen in, in December. And uh, and that's what the executive of, this, of, the, of the state is, is supposed to certify. And, and there's some additional helpfully clarifying language about, you know, how the state law can define the executive if they want to make it the secretary of state instead of the governor. So there's no ambiguity of who gets to do uh, the certification. And then what I think is especially important is there are several interlocking provisions of the new Section 5 that make it clear that if courts become involved in any dispute about the popular vote or the certification process, what the courts decide is going to be the rule of law answer with the supremacy of federal law and the Constitution obviously being supreme, meaning that if federal courts weigh in on any issue of federal law relevant to the counting of the popular vote or the certification of the appointment of the electors, that that, that federal judicial ruling is going to be conclusive. And it makes it clear that, again, you know, we, we expect that all of the relevant state officials are going to follow the law, you know, and and be law abiding. But if they're not, there are a couple of mechanisms in this new section five that guarantees that uh, malfeasance in the state cannot subvert the proper result, both in the states itself, and then in the counting of the electoral votes when it gets to Congress. And this, there's a, so there's a a special uh, federal court procedure if necessary to enforce compliance with the obligation to certify in accordance with the rule of law. And there's another provision that says that the rulings of the court will be deemed the true certification once the courts issue those rulings. So when it comes time for Congress to count the electoral votes, Section 5 again makes it clear that Congress is obligating itself to treat as conclusive whatever resolution of any process has been that has achieved a judicial answer. Uh, and, and that's what Congress is obligated to accept. So the, there are additional provisions and additional details, but I think that's the essence of what this section does. So we have this process in place that not just kind of structures who's supposed to be, well, first, how the election is conducted, which are the states manage, and then deal with if there's some sort of emergency we have a process that determines who's supposed to be certifying it and how the Congress is using its authority in terms of counting electoral votes to basically set some regulations around how this process is structured by giving preference to the electoral votes that match these procedures that align with this determinations of authority. You're right, except I think 
preference isn't quite strong enough a word to describe, you know, what, what I think you're correctly talking about. I mean, again, I think this word conclusive is important. And I'm, you know, I, I think it is a welcome revision that they've taken that word in and amplified it and highlighted it. So it's not like, you know, if, if there is ever, you know, this very fraught scenario of alternative submissions that get sent to Congress from the same state, uh, you know, what's happened in the past in 1876 and and what, you know, some people wanted to have happened in 2020, but never materialized. But but the current methodology for how to handle that, those alternative uh, submissions is the weakest part of the current statute for reasons that we could get into. And I think what the what the bill, this bipartisan bill does so constructively is it removes ambiguities on that and and it doesn't just create a kind of preference. It, it sort of locks in <laughs> that there's really only one submission that's entitled for congressional consideration and it's the one that satisfies these Section 5 standards. So it's not like Congress gets to choose between two with a presumption in favor of one. It's it's a I think I think to understand the philosophy and what the procedures actually do is it actually locks in that there's one valid submission, here's how to identify it, and everything else is just not cognizable. The completely fair clarification, uh, and that's very useful. So, so we have this process that determines who is, what is the authoritative slate that's gone forward that Congress is saying it will recognize, uh, the conclusive, uh, to borrow the language here, the conclusive slate um, of electors. Jean-Vivre, it, it then goes and builds in a specific process for federal courts that, that Ned's already alluded to a little bit, but I want to dig into a little bit, and carves out what is kind of a, not a new role, because of course federal courts are very involved in a lot of disputes around this already, but sets out very specific roles and specific structure to create the opportunities for litigation along a specific time frame. And this actually marries in a little bit with also an express recognition of the role that state courts might be playing uh, against the backdrop of the certification by state executive officials that uh, you know might end up requiring changes to that effect as well in terms of which one they actually certify, which I take as a reference to the, the Hawaii scenario that Ned noted earlier where, where we saw a subsequent state procedure kind of change who actually was determined to have won the process. What is this law doing in terms of the role of particularly the federal courts or the state courts as well in terms of putting them in this process and then constraining their role in a way that prevents it from being an avenue that might break the process? What what is the judicial role in this new step-by-step that it's laying out? Right. So, I mean, uh, the way I understand this is that what this does is provide, I mean, I've been thinking of it as a sort of a a federal court backstop. (laughs) Uh, There may be other words you can use. I don't read it so much as affecting um, existing, you know, litigants can still litigate election disputes as they have uh, in the past. You can bring state law claims in state court, bring, uh, you know, various kinds of claims in, in federal court, including claims by voters and, and like. So uh, this doesn't change necessarily the existing landscape of, of litigation and what's available. What it does, as I understand it, is create a sort of backstop at the end of the process. It's, it's a narrow procedural sort of provision that is you know, tied to existing constitutional and, and federal statutory law, and that gives just the candidates, really, right? So this is not a, a, a remedy that are, or a procedure that's open to just anyone. It's for the candidates uh, to bring claims under federal law, like I said, 
that relate to the specific you know, duty under the ECA of the governor or, or whomever else is identified to issue, you know, ascertain the results and issue a certification to Congress. That's a very specific duty, you know, federal duty imposed by the what would be the new ECA and transmit the cert- certification. And so if, if, if there's an allegation uh, by a candidate that, you know, for example, a state actor has purported to certify at the end of this process the wrong results, something contrary to, to state and federal law, you know, the sort of one of the nightmare scenarios that we've seen sort of floated out there. I think uh, this provides, I think, a, a clear sort of remedy at the end of the, the, the process to make sure that what Congress gets is actually the lawful sort of appointment of electors from a slate and, and to Ned's point gets only one so that there's clarity on what is only one. You know, I'd like to think this of this procedure as only coming into play in extreme circumstances, but I think it's important that it's added there, both for the, the clarity of, you know, giving courts that that sort of final opportunity to step in if there, if there are sort of shenanigans that last that long, um, and giving a very quick expedited process, um, all again with the sort of eye towards resolving all of these things before Congress does, does its work on, on January 6th. And that's my understanding as well. I think backstop is a good word. And, and the idea that it's only this particular judicial process really should only come into place in you know extreme scenarios that are, I hope, unlikely to prevail um, because they're, you know, in any contestation, there will have been other litigation that would have occurred earlier that presumably would have um, reached a resolution. And then you would like to think people would be law abiding and just follow the, the prior judicial rulings. And so I, I sort of see this as a belt. Why well, Sometimes I use the phrase belt and suspenders approach. In other words, yeah. uh, it's just an, an extra insurance policy that's built in to kind of guarantee that the rule of law will prevail and, and, and must prevail. So so I, I, again, backstop is, I think, an excellent way to think about it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten 
and another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So in our walk through the process now, we're at the point where the Congress has in its hands the different slates of electors that it's received from state authorities, some of which presumably match the confines that it says we're going to treat as conclusory and, and authoritative in terms of who's been appointed here. But there is still this debate process that we saw uh, you know, play out on January 6th about debating slates of electors and the big question hanging over this all about the role of the vice president that played a central role in the plans never actually executed, but the plans put forward by John Eastman and others in ways to try and turn the process in January 2021 in President Trump's favor. How is it that this act approaches that 
process of counting electoral votes. We see changes to the role of the vice president, changes to the way we handle objections, what you can make objections over, and they're all inter- intermingled. Ned, can you walk us through this a little bit and give us a sense of like of where this leaves Congress's ability to revisit uh, or deal with potential objections to these certifications? Sure, and I'm glad you kind of framed it the way you did because. Um, you know, we've been talking about kind of the substantive rules that are supposed to prevail, meaning, you know, like which um, submission from the states gets that conclusive treatment. And now we're turning to the procedures in Congress in the joint session about how they implement that. And the relationship of the substantive rules and the procedural rules in the current 1887 statute were very garbled and I think allowed for the confusion and the misunderstanding. Of, I mean, I think there was the sense that as long as you got one senator and one a representative to object, you could object to anything for whatever reason that you wanted to. And I think that was inaccurate under the current law. But but the way in which this new law would would structure and clarify the relationship between the substantive provisions in Section Five and the procedural provisions in Section Fifteen. I think it, it it makes that kind of confusion hard hard to under you know it just it's just much clearer in a good way. Um, so, but the so the procedures do do several things. One is you know there, there's a, now an explicit statement that the vice president's role or the role of the Senate president, usually the vice president, um, is ministerial and and presiding over the joint session, but it does not have the authority to make consequential rulings that affect the outcome of the election. So that's, you know, absolutely set forward. Um, another key provision, which touched on, I think, briefly, but is a very important part, is the raising the threshold, as it's called, for objections. So uh, instead of a single senator and a single representative triggering this debating process, you now need one-fifth of each body signing on to a, a formal objection. Uh, so 20% of the House, 20% of the Senate. Uh, and that's a signal that you know, there's not supposed to be frivolous objections, but I think that threshold, numerical threshold works in combination with the substantive rules because this section, section uh, 15, actually has new language saying, there are only certain types of objections that are permissible uh, and other ones are just not cognizable, again, even if you have the, uh, the requisite threshold. And, and there's a coordination between those sections of the bill and what we were talking about earlier in Section 5. So essentially, Congress counts and is obligated to count electoral votes cast by electors whose appointments have to be treated as conclusive pursuant to those earlier uh, procedures. And it's only if there's been some kind of flaw that deprives electors of the benefit of that conclusive status that, that an objection you know, is cognizable um, in connection with, with the electors who cast the vote. So, so I think the, the, the provisions work, work well together um, to kind of explain you know, what is supposed to happen when Congress actually meets uh, and if necessary, deliberate on on objections that are raised. I want to drill in a little bit on this question of the bases for objections, which strikes me as kind of the heart of this provision, or at least you know one of the most significant parts of it, because you basically have two grounds for objections, and they're only two grounds standing, um, which is is 
is somewhat narrower than, you know, certainly than what we see in occasional, occasionally legislators invoke in recent debates, uh, although it's rarely, if ever, gone. It's never really gone anywhere. Um, and the two objections basically are that the slave electors or electoral votes, elector, electors, I should say, is not certified in a manner required by the statute through the kind of process that we've discussed before. And, and then it's not regularly given, which is this language that's kind of imported in from the old version of that. Um, and I, based on my reading, although I, I may have missed it somewhere, I didn't see much clarification of, of what exactly that means definitionally. Jean-Vive, can you elaborate for us a little bit? You know, what does that mean in this context, the kind of regularly given bit? How does that enter in to this sort of process? And then more broadly, you know, what is envisioned happening if these objections are kind of upheld in the event that, you know, a vote is taken and people in Congress does determine, no, actually, that these objections apply? What does that do to the calculus here in terms of, you know, depriving presumably elect the whatever the slate of electors being issued is of the conclusive kind of presumption? Then what happens from that moving forward, which is a little less clear, for, at least from the, the face of the statute as I read it? Yeah, so the, the, the bill retains the term regularly given. It's a compromise bill, and it's an interesting choice to keep the language. You know, if I, if I, if I were queen for a day and could tweak a few things, I might, I might change the wording a bit to add some more clarity. But, but we do, I mean, if you look at sort of existing scholarship and legislative history, and again, and like, there is a proper understanding, I think, of what regularly given means and how it is different from an objection to the, like the sort of the lawfulness of the appointment of electors, right? So that's one, one sort of element and I think is covered at least to some extent by the first ground for objection. The term regularly given is about the, the casting of votes by appointed electors, right? So these are electors who have already been appointed and they have a duty under the, the constitution and, and this statute to cast votes on the, you know, the date set by Congress. So there, should, there are a really narrow potential set of, of reasons that a, a vote might be invalid um, and really sort of t- tied to the, the constitutional and statutory obligations that are, are imposed on appointed electors. Things like you know, meeting to vote on the correct day, you know, ensuring that there's not a vote cast for a candidate who is otherwise you know, constitutionally ineligible, you know, potentially things like b- being brought in the elector being bribed and, and therefore casting their vote um, unlawfully. So it's, it's really is meant to, you know, according to history, at least, and keeps the term, so the history then should apply, is is meant to apply to a very narrow set of sort of legal uh, infirmities with the vote cast by an appointed elector. So that's that's what that means. And again, that should be, you know, should be sort of very narrow, fairly rare circumstances under under which that occurs. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a vote by voting consideration, not a consideration of an entire slate of appointments. And so the way the way the the, the bill is structured is is, is you know, not dissimilar in, in some ways from from the existing law, is that it takes you know in order to reject a, a vote as not regularly given, it takes both chambers you know the, the chambers split upon uh, upon levying a you know a cognizable objection again like Ned said requires you know one fifth of each chamber to, to even get to that point but then if they do and the, the the objection is recognized the chambers split they vote. And it's a sort of majority threshold, as I understand it. It's still the case under this bill, and so b- both both chambers have to agree essentially that a vote, for example, is not regularly given in order to reject that vote. That, that's sort of like the general process. And then what this what this bill does that I, that is not an existing law and is 
you know, again, one of these things where there's perhaps a consensus on a proper interpretation, but it's not necessarily clear or written, written anywhere, is what happens if a vote is rejected, if a le- the, uh, an elector is determined not to have been lawfully appointed, or, you know, uh, and the first category of objections, Congress agrees to reject, you know, a slate of electors or something like that. There's this question about how you calculate the majority of a point of electors for determining who won. And I think, Scott, that's what you're getting to in the sort of second half of your question, right? So the, the, the 12th Amendment. Exactly. Yeah. So the 12th Amendment basically says that the winner of the, the presidency, the winner of the vice presidency is the person who gets the, the majority of the votes of the appointed electors, lawfully appointed electors. So the question is, what happens if there's something occurs and, you know, votes are rejected? This sort of we call it the denominator question. You, know, you take the total number of electoral votes, you know, along across the country, and you know you get to two seventy, two seventy one, and 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 obtain a majority. But what happens if, if something unusual happens there? This sort of clarifies what that at least, and I think it does it pretty well. And what it essentially says is that if either you know I think it's unlikely, but if you know, no electors are appointed by a state, then that comes out of the denominator in, in the calculation. Or if an objection to the lawfulness of the appointment of an elector is uh, sustained through this process that's laid out otherwise in the statute, that too comes out of the out of the, the denominator, such that you know we're talking about a, a total across the country that is lower because for one reason or another there are fewer lawfully sort of appointed electors. And to hit that point maybe a little more sharply to make sure I understand it right. This essentially anticipates that if these objections are successful, there are just no electors installed by those states. So it drops out of the denominator, and there's not an assumption that the Congress will have the ability to say, okay, well, we're going to accept this alternative slate that was put forward because even though it didn't meet this, this objection was upheld, the objection did succeed. But nonetheless, we're going to go forward and kind of accept an alternative slate. And that strikes me as a, as a little bit of a sharper line than the, the prior ECA clearly drew or was understood to draw, although I could be wrong on that. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious if Ned has the same take. I, I think that's right. And it you know, distinguishes yeah. between the appointment of the elector versus an elector's vote that is somehow otherwise rejected. And it, but it just, just got, it doesn't necessarily, I think it doesn't have to be an entire slate necessarily. It's possible, for example, that one elector was him or herself unlawfully or, you know, appointed. Right, of course. Right. Yes, no, that's my understanding as well. And I, I think, again, this is another one of the really good provisions of this bill because, you know, the, the 1887 Act did not address this question. They knew there was an ambiguity in the 12th Amendment on the so-called denominator issue if if electors were disqualified having been not properly appointed or never appointed in the first place. Uh they're very much aware of the history of that from 1872 as well as 1876 and other examples, but they couldn't agree on what to do. And that's just they, so they left it out of their statute. And it's, uh, you know, if we ever get to that point, it, you, you just need clarity. And so this bill provides that clarity. And I actually think it, it provides the clarity in the right way for the reasons, Scott, that you said. I mean, it, it means that you, you can't try to manipulate the process you know, through an alternative slate, it, it, and it, you know, it significantly reduces the likelihood of of having to go to the uh, contingent election procedure of the Twelfth Amendment, where each state delegation in the House of Representatives votes for president by 
you know, one vote per state last used in 1824, which I think is, is just a mechanism out of the 18th and early 19th century that is just, you know, contrary to our current understandings of what a presidential election should really be for the United States. And so uh, if electors are disqualified for failure of a proper appointment, instead of having a contingent election procedure by the House because of no side getting a majority of, you know, the total number of 538 eligible, instead, you know, there's going to be if it's, unless there's some third candidate who wins electoral votes, which you know could happen, but it's unlikely. But but if basically it's a it's a fight between Team Red and Team Blue over who won a particular state, like Pennsylvania or Arizona or whatever, if Pennsylvania and Arizona's votes are disqualified, some of either of those candidates is going to get a majority of the reduced denominator and be elected straight up based on. <laughs> Uh, the duly appointed electors. So, um, and you're not going to need to, you know, to go to that backup house provision. And and a lot of the conspiracy, if that's the right term, around you know the Eastman memo and what Trump wanted, and you know as we're learning, it was kind of an effort to try to get to that contingent election procedure, uh, and it was misguided for lots of reasons. But 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 this provision would uh, would batten down that even more than current law to, to foreclose that, that possibility in a good way. And if I could add just one more thing to build on what jean Vier said about how the new rules for the joint session are, are better than current law, um, I just want to highlight an element of, of what she was talking about. Again, there's this odd provision of the current law that in the event that the two chambers disagree in a situation where there are rival submissions of electoral votes from the same state, the joint session is supposed to feel obligated to count the one submitted by the governor after there's been this disagreement between the two chambers. I mean, it would be an ugly scenario no matter what if it occurred. And again, given the convoluted language of the statute in which it's embedded, there's been debates about exactly how that would apply and so on and so forth. And all of that is thankfully eliminated by this new bill, if it's adopted, making it clear that you know, nothing gets disqualified unless both houses uh, vote to disqualify. And again, uh, you start with the, the premise that what's been certified is entitled to this conclusive status unless both chambers deprive it of that conclusive status because both chambers agree for some reason that it must be deprived of, of, of that entitlement. So I, I think those are, we've covered the essential elements of the statute here, but Ned, I want to turn to you with kind of a meta question, which is obviously reforming the statute is a serious attempt to foreclose a lot of the manipulations and machinations we saw discussed around the 2020 election that have occasionally been discussed in the context of other elections as well that the old ECA, the current ECA, I should say, uh, at least until this is enacted, seems to make available. The question I have is how much can this fully foreclose those options or at least those arguments? Because at least part of certainly the John Eastman argument about the role of the vice president entailed treating the current ECA, the existing ECA, as unconstitutional, as an unconstitutional constraint 
on the vice president's authority to, you know, in his view, determine how electoral votes should be counted. Um, you know, there's some question as to how much Eastman himself actually believed that, <laughs> but certainly that is part of the arguments that were put forward as part of these sorts of proposals. So, you know, what are the potential constitutional limits in terms of how much this act can fully change or how much this act, I guess, can foreclose constitutional arguments people might still be able to make to say that they can somehow change the outcome of these elections, uh, even if there may be good reason to doubt whether that's an accurate argument or not. Yeah, it's a good, important question. Maybe a couple of thoughts. You know, one is um, human beings are not computers or robots, so rules have to be implemented by, you know, flesh and blood people who, you know, could try to do the wrong thing even if they're not supposed to. And 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 we hope, you know, that the rules, if clear, get followed. Um, but but you know, so this new statute, if it's adopted, is a good set of rules. But Congress still has to obey the rules. And, and that, I guess, leads to my second point in this regard. You know, there is this debate about whether any Electoral Count Act is permissible insofar as it binds the two chambers of Congress by legislation as opposed to, you know, rulemaking by each chamber. I, I happen to think that Congress does have the authority to enact a statute of this nature um, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, as long as the content of the statute is consistent with constitutional provisions, as I think this one would be. Um, but what I would expect happen would happen under the new revised DCA, if this is adopted, is that the chambers would continue their practice that they've been doing, you know, for years and years of, you know, before the January 6th joint session, each chamber by rule embraces the ECA for that particular joint session and says, you know, we, the Senate, by rule, are going to follow the ECA this year. And the House does the same thing. And, and that concurrent resolution, as I think it's called, gives the ECA not just force of statutory law, but force of each body obeying its own rules. And so I think people should look upon this bipartisan bill as a key step but one step in an overall bipartisan commitment on the part of you know both parties in both chambers to say they want a set of rules that can guide them you know in in this important event whenever congress receives and counts electoral votes that's why this statute needs to be bipartisan beyond just the needing to overcome a filibuster it's essential that both parties think we've got a set of rules that we can obey they say that now if they adopt this statute now, and then they say it again, you know, prior to the next joint session when they say each chamber, yep, we're going to obey the new rules adopted in the revised ECA. So I think that's the best way to avoid the constitutional question. And, you know, as long as we have a 12th Amendment, Unfortunately, it's unavoidable that we have certain constitutional ambiguity because the 12th Amendment is itself not the clearest provision, unfortunately. But, but a well-written ECA is the best thing that we can do given the 12th Amendment that we have. And that's why this bipartisan bill is so important. So we're almost out of time, but I feel like I don't want to leave the other parts of this legislative package completely untouched. So, Genevieve, I want to turn to you for just a, a last question on this. 
Along with this big package of complex ECA reforms we've been discussing, there is also another statutory provision in the same bill that basically sets out a process by which if there is an election that's unclear what the result is um, after Election Day leading up to January 20th to the inauguration of the new president, it creates a process by which the existing incumbent government or administration can designate more than one potential, you know, victorious candidate as an incoming candidate, begin to share information, share resources so they can have a transition process. That was a big point of concern um, for the incoming Biden administration that the Trump administration declined to take this step uh, until very late in the process. And they're obviously trying to reform that. Then in a separate bill with a slightly narrower, uh, slightly less Republican, although still a number of Republican co-sponsors, we see a package of other reforms which do things like support the post office setting up kind of standard pro- more standard process for handling election related mailings and presumably voting by mailing as well provisions to help facilitate state cybersecurity efforts around elections, and then a number of provisions that actually uh, set obligations for maintaining records and then increase the criminal penalties associated with interfering with people trying to you know, exercise their election rights or other aspects of the election process as well. I guess first I would ask, what are the most important parts of these other parts of this package from your perspective? And why are we seeing it structured and broken out this way? You know, are there objections to aspects of those latter four elements that people couldn't sign in on that are a sign that they may not have the same political future as the main ECA reform and and presidential transition package? And and what is the way this bill has been structured and the types of co-sponsors that has lined up? Tell us about the likely process moving forward in your eyes. You know, what are the legs this is going to have and how are we going to know how viable this proposal is moving forward? All good questions. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, well, the other pieces are relatively narrow, so it's a little hard to, to pick from them as what's the most important. I think what you obviously have seen is what we've got on the, the sort of the Presidential Transition Act, the, you know, the ascertainment question that you, and I think you outlined it well, what that, what that piece does is provide some parameters for ascertaining who the apparent winner of the election is, and then also sort of contingencies if that ascertainment sort of drags on and, and allows, I think very importantly, for sort of funding and, and other resources for more than one candidate while that's being sorted out, because that, you know, that transition time is really critical, not just as a matter of sort of domestic policy, but for national security purposes and the like. We really rely on our transition times to make sure that the next presidential administration is set up to, to serve the country and it's both domestic and, and security interests, you know, as strongly as possible. So that's, it's a really critical time frame where even a matter of days matters. So, you know, I'd want to spend a little more time with the details of it, but I think in general that it's, it's doing the right thing in terms of addressing that concern that was highlighted last time. And then I think the other, the other provisions are of course, important ones, you know, more protections for you know election workers and election processes. Again, we've seen as a really significant sort of fault line following the last election. You know, uh, you know, just just say to be clear that there's you know potentially a lot more that would like to see Congress do to protect elections, sort of from start to finish. Uh, but this is where there's bipartisan consensus, and I, I think it, it's all sort of good things. You know, in terms of why it's separated, I think there could be a few reasons for that. Reading some sort of tea leaves here. Is one is I think the way this process was structured from the beginning. So you know you'd ask me sort of at the beginning of this podcast how, how Congress went about this, and this this sort of bipartisan group that convened, uh, the working group 
divided itself among different sort of subgroups, right? So the ECA was one topic. Some of these other things were another topic. So maybe some of this is just sort of a, you know, a feature of that. I think there are, you know, there's, there's some, I think, political differences. And once you get outside the sort of four corners of the ECA, then that may be reflected here. I think and this, this sort of remains to be seen, but, you know, we, we've already heard Senator Klobuchar say that the Rules Committee, the Senate Rules Committee, will hold hearings on the ECA. It's, I think it's possible, at least, that this, the other bill will go on a somewhat different track through a different committee. It's a little, I'm not, not sure that's entirely clear yet. And because there's sort of just the, the jurisdiction of the committees and they sort of just fall differently, right, these different pieces. So I think that's, a, that's potentially a big piece of, of why you're seeing two different bills. You know, it, it does sort of seem like the the four corners of the ECA that 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 first bill has the most consensus, but I'm not sure that that means that they that both bills don't have a, a good shot of getting through. There's you know there's a lot there's a long way to go. Um, I think this is really sort of again the the bipartisan nature of both of these, and you know the fact that they're the result of this sort of working group digging into all of the details, and that and that all of these things both in the ECA bill and then the sort of broader packages, like I said earlier, reflect a really a sort of cross-partisan consensus on these topics. I think all bode well for the future of them. I think we'll just have to have to see how it all plays out procedurally. Well, on that note, we will have to leave the conversation there. Ned Foley, Jean-Vivre Nadeau, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much thank for you. having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual chat on national security that I co-host every week along with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.